Welcome to the Women in Public Policy Program Seminar Series Podcast at the Harvard Kennedy School. All right, great. I don't want to lose any time. Let's go ahead and get started right on time. I am um, Hannah Riley Bowles. I'm the research director here at the Women in Public Policy Program, which gives me the um, wonderful opportunity to, to host this uh, weekly seminar that we have. Um, here at the Women in Public Policy Program, we're focused on closing gender gaps in the areas of economic opportunity, political participation, health, and education. And our speaker today is right on uh, mission for us. Um, Sarah Iqbal is the program manager for Women, Business, and the Law at the World Bank. And um, this is such an important, this is such an important institution, obviously, for economic development, but also for gender equality. And my understanding from talking to people behind the scenes, it's not, um, it's, there's, 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 there's progress to be made within the bank as well as outside of the bank. And so we have a, you have our, um, it's, we're, we appreciate those. We kind of share the norm, but one of the themes that's discussed often in the seminar is how hard the work is, um, making people, raising people's awareness and getting people bought into the practical and normative arguments for closing gender gaps. So we're really especially pleased to have you here. Um, uh, Sarah Ekbal is going to talk about women, business, and the law, removing restrictions to enhance gender equality. And um, this is a report um, uh, basically based on a very large data set that they've analyzed that examines how legal, how the legal and regulatory environment affect women's ability to get jobs and start businesses. So this is uh, very important work and we're excited to have you here. Thanks so much for <laughs> Folks should be reminded that um, oh, we do tape these sessions and then I have one question I should have checked with you. Are you open to questions during your presentation or are you... Okay, great. All right, terrific. I'd like this to be as interactive as possible, so if you have any burning questions, please please do ask me. Uh, and thank you to Hannah, and thank you to Victoria and the Women in Public Policy Program. It's a real pleasure for me to be here and to see such a great turnout. So uh, as you mentioned, Hannah, sort of within the World Bank, outside of the World Bank, I think gender work is, is difficult. And part of it is convincing people of the importance of it and the economic importance of why these gender gaps matter and why we need to close them. And what we do is actually measure gender gaps in policy variables. When I started in the bank in 2008, I think uh, the environment was very different from what it is today. And part of it was just convincing my colleagues that this work even matters that there is an economic imperative to looking at where there are gender gaps in the legal environment and how to work on closing them. And I, and I have to say, in the ensuing years, there's been a real sea change in attitudes at the bank. Uh, a lot more people are interested in this work. They want to do it. They want to learn how to do it. In the beginning, it was funny. We would chase after people and be like, look at this data. It really matters. And now, actually, the opposite problem is occurring where there's too much demand and not enough supply. So I'm gonna give you a little history of the project first and explain some of our key findings. Um, so essentially where women, business, and the law came from is there's another data set that the World Bank produces called Doing Business. And it looks at uh, sort of the life cycle of a small and medium-sized enterprise and at how it functions in the regulatory environment. So how do businesses get started? What is the policies and the laws and regulations around that? You know, what are the rules around employing workers, uh, enforcing contracts, uh, sort of closing a business, all the life cycle of a business. 
And what happened was in 2008, the board of the World Bank asked us uh, how these rules really differ for women. So what we did is we had research questions in these series of surveys that Doing Business produced, and we asked lawyers in these countries, would it make a difference if a man or a woman was doing this? And what we found is actually at the level of being in business, uh, looking at the legal environment, you don't really see that many differences for men and women because you're measuring an SME. You're not really taking a gender lens and you're not looking at the issue in the right way. But we got a lot of responses from these lawyers who said basically, yes, once you start the business, it's the, the same for a man or a woman, but the problem is women aren't starting businesses. They're really getting restricted here and so they're never able to get up to this level here and you should look at sort of the level of family law, property law, employment, look at the inputs and the sort of the binding constraints, the barriers in the legal and regulatory environment. So that's where we started finding the obstacles that are specific to women. And at first, we assumed that it would be a fairly even baseline, and actually it was really surprising that it wasn't in some very fundamental ways uh, across the world, and not just in developing countries, but in developed countries as well. And some of these gender gaps in, in the legal environment actually hadn't closed in developed economies uh, until very recently. So what we do is we measure in uh, seven indicators, accessing institutions, which looks at basic legal capacity issues. And for those of you who are not lawyers, and I'm assuming most of you are not, uh, basic legal capacity issues are things like, can you sign a contract in the same way? Uh, can you open a bank account? Do you have the same legal authority to be able to conduct a transaction as anyone else? So for example, in most countries, minors don't have the same legal capacity as adults because they're not considered uh, able to do sort of the same transactions. They don't have the same level of maturity. But what's interesting is that in many countries, women actually don't have the same legal capacity as men. And in particular, married women don't have the same legal capacity as married men. And it's not that rare, and it wasn't that long ago in this country that the same was true. Uh, and I'll go into that in greater detail in a little bit. So we also look at using property and basically the ability to own, manage, administer property for women in the same way as men. In the getting a job indicator, we look at the gamut of labor laws. So are there restrictions on the types of jobs women can do, the types of industries women can w uh, work in? Are uh, there gender differentiated retirement and pensionable ages? So women have to retire earlier than men uh, in certain countries. We also look at what maternity, paternity, and parental leave regimes look like uh, and sort of what the responsibilities are uh, from the government side versus the employer side and how that might affect women's labor force participation. In providing incentives to work, we look at person, personal income tax liabilities for men versus women, and also credits and deductions that are available, and what the sort of the basic educational regime looks like in terms of providing free education and mandating it. In building credit and going to court, we actually look at processes that can help small and medium-sized enterprises. They're not gender-specific, but they can help uh, sort of women-owned businesses research has demonstrated women-owned businesses actually tend to be smaller, they have less capital. So in building credit, we look at minimum loans tracked by the private credit bureau and public credit registries, and whether they take into account information from microfinance organizations, also from utilities and retailers, because the issue is in credit reporting systems, maybe the types of loans that women take and the types of bills that they are able to pay back properly are just not counted, so women can't uh, be part of the credit reporting system. And going to court, we look at uh, access to small claims courts, but also whether women's testimony has the same evidentiary weight 
as men. And we have a new indicator that we just produced this past year on protecting women from violence, looking at what the baseline of legislation looks like for sexual harassment in the workplace and uh, domestic violence. So why do these areas matter for women's economic opportunities? It's really what I was saying before in terms of the lack of autonomy to interact with uh, sort of public authorities and the private sector means that women really aren't able to freely function in the business environment, that they're stopped even before they can get started. For example, head of household requirements where there's a man only head of household requirement can actually affect women's ability to conduct certain transactions. And you may not be aware of what a head of household requirement, uh, sorry, a head of household legislation is, but in a lot of countries, not this one, but in a lot of countries, uh, sort of the head of household has an additional ability to do something. So for example, in a lot of countries in the Middle East and North Africa, there's something called a family book. A family book goes to the head of household, which de facto is, is generally a man, uh, and that family book is used to register kids in school, for example or to get access to the public health care system. And if you don't have the family book, you're not able to do these things. There are also pension benefits that go with that. There's sometimes uh, the tax regime, is, the personal income tax regime is tied to that. Uh, as I mentioned, often marriage is the trigger that uh, really sort of starts this differentiation in the law. We disaggregate our data based on marriage for a lot of the indicators. So we look at single women versus single men and married women versus uh, married men and see are the rights and responsibilities the same or are they different and almost across the board in almost every single country that we look at single women have the same legal rights as single men but when women marry in certain countries they give up part of their legal capacity their legal rights uh, to their husbands and this is actually um, not that rare you used to see it in a lot of common law countries in uh, countries that derive from the English legal tradition there were a series of Married Women's Property Acts uh, about 100 years ago, and including in the United States, where they basically said, uh, they started listing out legal rights that could be given to married women, and the way the legislation is structured, it would say married women now have the same legal ability to do X, Y, or Z in the same way as a femsole, which means a single woman. And you saw that in actually many states in the United States, you saw that in England, you saw that in Singapore, Australia. Uh, the, the civil law system is a little bit different, and I can get into that in, in greater detail. The, the other really important thing, and I would say this is fundamental, is access to property rights. Access to property rights for women can be especially important in developing economies when it comes to entrepreneurial activities, because most uh, banks really look at real property as collateral for loans. If you ever want to get a loan, you have to put up collateral, and women just don't have access to, to property, to land, <coughs> in the same way that men do. So we looked at uh, 143 economies, and what we found is in almost 90% of the economies that we covered, there was at least one legal difference restricting women's ability to access economic opportunities. So. Um, you see the breakdown here, and it's basically based on the number of legal differences, 0 to 3, uh, 3 to 5, 5 to 10, and above 10. And that's not to say that one legal difference may have the effect or the impact that a whole sort of range of legal differences may have, but when you start getting to uh, economies that have 10 or more legal differences, it just means that women kind of get boxed in more in terms of what they can and cannot do, and that may affect certain outcome indicators for them, such as labor force participation, ownership and management of 
firms, it may affect their voice, their agency. I think all of it is really interconnected and you have to take a holistic view of the legal environment for women. And among the 28 economies, uh, sort of out of the 143 that we cover, 10, um, so among the 28 economies that have 10 or more legal restrictions, 25 are in the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa. So that, please go ahead. Um, I'm just, it's fascinating, but can you, what, can you describe at least like sort of regionally or characterize the 143 economies that you looked at? I mean, does of it course. include industrial, I mean the It includes West, the yeah. whole gamut. Okay, so right. basically we looked at the whole range of uh, economies covered by the World Bank Group. And I think it's something like 189. And out of those, out of every region that we covered, so out of OECD, high income, Latin America and the Caribbean, the Middle East and North Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, we picked as many economies as we could get data from. Okay. And we're actually trying to increase that subset from 143 to 189. And we'll probably increase uh, in our next data collection cycle, hopefully to an additional 10, maybe more. And it really is dependent on resources and where the data is coming in from. And is there systematic variation by region in terms of what's not represented here? Just I mean, so there's not a variation by region in terms of what's not representative. We've tried to have a good regional representation. So a lot of what's not represented is small island economies, uh, conflict-afflicted states. So for example, we don't have Afghanistan, we don't have uh, a lot of the, the smaller economies in the Pacific, and it's just because it's harder to collect data. So any of the sort of the, the larger economies in a region, they, they should be represented. And if you're interested in a particular economy, please do ask me, and all the data is available on our website as well. So this is, what's interesting about this, this is arguably conservative you might imagine that in conflict zones or some smaller states that you would be fairly likely to find some of these. I, I would say so, yes. Um, part of it is also in terms of implementation. So for example, it really breaks down in terms of shared legal history. The trends are very much regional trends uh, and legal historical trends. So civil law countries tend to break down in a certain way. Common law countries tend to break down in a certain way. Although there are sort of variations within regions, of course, uh, and sort of you see very strong trends coming out of Eastern Europe and Central Asia versus other trends that come out of the Middle East and North Africa, and it's because of uh, similar legal histories. I have one more question that I of promise I'll Yes. <laughs> but can you just describe for folks who may not be familiar with common law versus civil law, can you just give a, a general explanation of that? So basically, uh, common law would be sort of countries that are based on the English legal tradition. So it's case law based. In civil law countries, and most countries in Latin America and the Caribbean, and most countries in Europe uh, are civil law based. And in Africa, it breaks down. In Eastern Africa, it tends to be common law based. And in Western Africa, it tends to be, this is a very broad generalization, it tends to be civil law based. Although in Sub-Saharan Africa, you also see customary law, uh, which is a different level of the law. And we tend to see lots of parallel legal systems, but uh, it just depends on sort of where the source of the law is coming from. So for example, in legislation in the United States, in Australia, in the United Kingdom, there's a certain tradition that it comes from, and civil law countries tend to be based on sort of French and Spanish law and the Code Napoleon. And you can kind of see, and I'll, I'll get into this, the historical trends in a bit, because we did actually a time series data set going back in terms of reforms over the past 50 years. There's very, very strong commonalities based on legal systems. 
So this is one of the things that I was talking about in terms of trends based on region. So one of the things that we look at are certain types of job restrictions on women and certain sectors that they cannot work in. Uh, and what we found is 79 economies uh, legislation restricts the types of jobs women can do. And these are jobs for women uh, who are not pregnant and not nursing, so we separate that out because we feel like it's important to have extra protections for women who are pregnant and nursing. So these are sort of women who are uh, sort of not performing a childcare maternal function versus men. And the issue is why these extra protections exist for women versus men. If these jobs are really dangerous or hazardous, should they not also be hazardous for men? And what's interesting is this was actually really surprising for us because you don't tend to see lots of restrictions in economies that have a, a sort of a socialist background. But in the Russian Federation, we found there's a regulation whereby there's 456 very specific jobs that women cannot do. In Kazakhstan, it's 299. In Belarus, it's 252. I mean, I could go on and on. We actually have all of this legislation. If you can read Russian, I'm happy to send them to you. Uh, they're very, very sort of, they track very commonly, and they actually come from former Soviet legislation. So for example, in the Russian Federation, women can't be a truck driver in the agricultural sector. They can't drive metro trains, although they can drive buses, they can drive above ground trains. And there was actually a case in St. Petersburg, I believe in 2008, where a woman sued the, the Metro Train Authority because she was trying to get a job. This was in the midst of the global financial crisis. This was one of the few jobs that was available, but she couldn't do it because she was a woman. And, and she lost, actually. And the question is why some of these restrictions exist. Uh, so in Belarus, women can't be divers, porters, lumberjacks. I mean, it's very, very, very specific uh, and very long list of jobs women cannot do. And the question becomes, where do you go, where do you find the balance between being protective and being prohibitive? Because a lot of this legislation is supposed to protect women. Yeah. It's supposed to protect women's uh, psychosocial function, and it's not a term that I make up, it's actually a term that's in, in the legislation. But the question is, what are you protecting them from, and what are you trying to achieve? Because one of the results of uh, having lots of sector-specific restrictions on women is essentially the gender wage gap. So that it's not, oh, sorry, go ahead. Finish your point, and then I'll make my comment. So basically, some of the research has shown us that it's not I, as a woman, am earning less than my colleague who's a man, but I, as a woman, am getting sorted into sectors that actually pay less, have less value added uh, than the sectors that men are getting <coughs> sorted into. And legislation like this actually contributes to that. A, a really nice mechanism that you might want to look at as kind of a model for what could take place the same types of restrictions were present within the United States very pervasively when you looked at our military system and structure. And it wasn't until Leon Panetta, Secretary of Defense, in 2012 reversed the way it worked. It used to be that all combat level positions were closed to women until 2012. And up until that time, if a woman wanted to, if the role was going to be open to women, it required a congressional exemption. And then it would be opened. He flipped it. Right. And so then now every role is open to women unless you have a congressional exemption. But the important part is that they have restructured roles not based on gender, which in essence is an arbitrary concern since women and men come in all different shapes, sizes, capacities, abilities. They're now creating for every single role a set of um, physical and skill-based parameters 
which also, you know, it weeds out the ineffective or inefficient of all. So it's a nice, uh, it's a nice model, and they've um, each branch is working on it independently. I've done a little bit of um, conversational advising with them on that. So very nice. Yeah, yeah. it tags to that exactly, um, and it's I think it's a really nice model in that very few people are going to suggest that the U.S. military would do it a sloppy way. No, you know I what I mean? You're so exactly benchmark. right, and that is a very nice model. And we're actually seeing more countries reforming labor law, so precisely removing gender-based restrictions, yeah. which are arbitrary right. uh, and sort of blanket, uh, and sort of making them more protective for all workers, for all employees. Because I do think it's based on the individual rather than some arbitrary decision. And, and, and do you have a sense of why those restrictions came out of <coughs> Russian law? Was it protectionist for jobs? Mm -hmm. and like male trade unions, like what is the background, do you so know? So my understanding is it was actually supposed to protect women. So it was supposed to protect women from areas that are not conducive to their psychosocial function. So these were considered to be jobs that women could not do, and so a lot of the restrictions that we see, in particular in labor law and things like retirement and pension ages, are supposed to protect women, and out of the Soviet system, and you can almost read the old uh, Soviet labor codes, which yeah. actually get reproduced all throughout the Acre region, uh, that they're supposed to sort of protect women's maternal function. And now you see countries sort of reforming this slowly to, to make it more pervasive across both genders. So if a job is considered too hazardous, it's considered hazardous for everyone, and there should be special protections. Another uh, example of that would be one of the, the most common restrictions that we see in the law is, is women aren't allowed to work in mines, and there's actually an old ILO treaty on that. And many, many countries have signed on to that, but the ILO, in terms of the way that it looks at this type of legislation now, has kind of moved on to a more a model protecting all workers rather than sort of just arbitrarily protecting a gender, but a lot of these issues are still within the law of certain countries. And the question is, you know, how do you start changing some of um, and how do you sort of demonstrate to countries why they should change, why this actually makes a difference, how it contributes to the gender wage gap? Because if you talk to policymakers, they'll always say, oh, but you know, women want to retire earlier. They should retire earlier. And the question becomes, okay, if you have a five-year difference in retirement age between men and women, if you have a 10-year difference, you know, what does that mean for women's jobs prospects? Mm -hmm. In terms of uh, being an employer, who am I more likely to hire, a man or a woman, if this person is going to leave earlier? And then on top of that, women have longer lifespans than men, and they take time out to, to have and rear children. So what does that mean for them rising further in their career? And what is the implications for poverty and retirement if you have a shorter working life and therefore a shorter pension? You know, I mean, the question is, if you're trying to protect women, is it really protecting women or is it hurting them? And I think a lot of times policymakers aren't aware of sort of the downstream implications of mm -hmm. some of this legislation. And a lot of times they're not even aware that the legislation exists, which brings me to my next slide. So this is uh, sort of married women legally cannot take the same actions in the same way as married men in some economies. And we look at things like being head of household, choosing where to live, applying for a passport, conferring citizenship on children. That's actually a big one in the Middle East and North Africa. And the issue is uh, one of the one of my personal favorites because it's just a startling example is the economies where a husband has to give permission to his wife to work or he can get her fired from a job if he feels it's not in the interest of the family. I remember talking to policymakers uh, from certain countries in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa 
and we'll describe the reform process towards the end of the presentation, but I, there was a, a delegation of men and one woman and me, and I was describing to them sort of the legislation that's on the books, and they were saying, no, 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 this is not the case in our country, that's not in the law, and then you showed them the law. And sort of their eyes open, in, in the meantime, the one woman in the delegation is standing in the back of the room kind of nodding because she knows it to be true. Whereas uh, the policymakers, whether they're from the Ministry of Finance, the Ministry of Economy, this is not their bread and butter issue. They're not aware of it, and you know it, it makes sense that they're not aware of it. But once they do become aware of it, actually, and the implications on women's employment, they, you know, they're very open to change, and they're willing to change. And I think that's actually really, really excellent. So it's not so much that they're adamantly opposed to it, but they may not be aware of some of these restrictions. And all of these that we're looking at, registering a business, signing a contract, what I mean when I say it's different for men and women is oftentimes women need permission, married women need permission from their husbands to be able to do a thing. So for example, in the passport restrictions, sometimes you need your husband's signature, sometimes you need you know, him to be there to, to give approval. We also look at national identity cards, and what's interesting is to get into a lot of government buildings, to be able to even get into the door, you need some kind of identification. If you can't get that identification without your husband's permission, already that's stopping you. That's stopping you from carrying out the activity. So this is a, a slide sort of depicting the time series data set that we did. It's the evolution of restrictions in the past 50 years, 400 countries, for women's property rights and legal capacity. So we took these two areas and we started looking at reforms in the law for 100 countries, starting from 1960 and going to 2010. So basically 50 years, and we took 1950 as the, uh, sorry, 1960 as the start date because that was really around the time decolonization was going on in Sub-Saharan Africa. And we wanted to see what some of the reforms were, where countries <coughs> had reformed, and what the regional trends were. And actually what we found was a, a really nice story in terms of how regions have reformed and how the reform process has really accelerated in the past 50 years. So the thing that was most surprising to me was the number of restrictions on the books in place uh, in the 1960s. And in particular, the number of restrictions in developed economies, in high-income OECD, OECD economies, in Germany, in Austria, in France, uh, in Spain, you saw these types of restrictions on married women's legal capacity and property rights uh, that were then removed by 2010. So you'll see in Sub-Saharan Africa, Latin America, and the Caribbean, East Asian, the Pacific restrictions were reduced by more than half, and OECD high-income economies in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, they were eliminated entirely. And Sorry, did you have a Can you explain the y-axis percent of restrictions? Like, what's the denominator? The denominator is, we looked at 27. Uh, so 27 specific oh, restrictions. Uh, of the 27, yes, 50% were in place. I exactly. Think. And then uh, we looked at the specific restrictions. And the way that we tracked this was we just went through old legislation. Old legislation, year by year, tracking changes in 100 economies over time. And the thing that I found most fascinating was the way these restrictions tracked. So for example, you saw a lot of restrictions on married women's legal capacity in France. You saw it uh, in Austria, in Germany, that married women needed permission from their husbands to carry out certain activities. These were removed in the 60s and the 70s, but a lot of them remain in place in Sub-Saharan Africa. And an example of this would be sort of in DRC. right? So in DRC, the family code in the Democratic Republic of Congo is actually based on the old code Napoleon. 
Uh, and the legislation almost verbatim, you take the old Code Napoleon and you look at the Family Code of DRC, and verbatim the restrictions are there. Now when the French and the Belgians pulled out of West Africa, they then went on and removed the restrictions in their legislation to revise their own codes, but a lot of this restriction remained in place in Sub-Saharan Africa. Another interesting uh, sort of tracking of this was Spain. So in Spain, they actually reformed quite late. They reformed after the Franco regime fell in Spain. And in the 1980s, they removed these legal capacity restrictions and property restrictions on women. And then you started seeing very similar reforms in Latin America. So in Brazil, in Argentina, in Uruguay, in Paraguay, they started removing these restrictions. You can almost track it on a timeline, the way that these sort of uh, former colonies removed restrictions after the restrictions were removed in uh, sort of the colonizers. And what we found is uh, gender-based legal restrictions are associated with lower female participation in the ownership of firms. So there's another data set the World Bank produces, the enterprise surveys, and that really looks at outcome data from uh, the perspective of the, the particular firms. One of the indicators it has is uh, female participation in the ownership of firms, women managing, uh, women being the owners of firms, women being the top managers of firms, and it, it makes sense. Where you have fewer restrictions, you have more women owning and managing firms. Um, and so what we do is we measure restrictions, we also measure incentives. Incentives being, uh, we have a subset of incentives that we look at both on maternity, paternity, and parental leave, but also on uh, sort of quotas, on women's participation in politics, on uh, corporate boards, and it's interesting because you'll see all 143 economies that we cover are mapped on this graph, and the general trend is the more restrictions an economy has, actually the fewer incentives it has as well. <coughs> Going from the, the greatest number of restrictions all the way down to zero, and then the incentives on the other side. And uh, that was actually surprising for us. We didn't quite realize that this relationship would be that stark. And uh, one of the, the twin goals that the World Bank is moving towards is increasing shared prosperity. And what we found is actually economies that provide more incentives for women to work have greater income equality, or rather less income inequality. Back to an earlier one about the um, changes of the laws. Mm -hmm. um, what would you say were the three major uh, impetus? What caused that? Was it, was it men and women together? Was it change of government? Was it public policy, I mean, it takes a lot for laws to change, specifically when there are much more men in the legislative or the bodies that control the actual changing of laws. So I'm really glad that you asked that question, and I'm going to skip ahead, because I have two slides that answer that explicitly. So what we found, and there's a couple of papers that we did on this, and they're available on our website as well, that uh, there were two major impetuses for this type of reform. One was CEDAW. So CEDAW really helped catalyze reforms and rates of reform doubled within five years of a country ratifying the convention, eliminating all forms of discrimination against women. And the other one was precisely what you were saying. Women legislators raise the probability of reforms. So once you have more women in parliament, more women in government, you tend to see a greater number of reforms on women-specific issues. And I think those are the two key drivers, uh, both the, the Human Rights Convention and the number of women participating in the political process. Uh, those would be sort of over time, the two key drivers that we've seen. Although now you see governments changing uh, sort of outside of that. And actually producing the baseline data we found has been an impetus for reform. 
because countries that haven't changed may not realize that these laws are on the books. There are lots of old laws that we look at, for example, that have been in place and policymakers are not aware of them. And the other is really the economic implications of, of reform. Going back to your incentive slides, can you give some examples of incentives? Of course. So one of the, the set of incentives that we look at are basically political participation, right? So are there incentives for women participating on corporate boards? So corporate board quotas, uh, now you're seeing in more OECD economies, I think there may be five that have them. Mm -hmm. uh, and Malaysia also is trying to implement one. Um, we also see outcome quotas for women in parliament, women in local government. Uh, we look at non-discrimination as well, non-discrimination laws, uh, and parental uh, maternity and paternity leave legislation. And actually, we can go through the incentives in greater detail. There's a set of 14 that we look at. But uh, we're trying to increase that out uh, and sort of look more at what governments are doing to incentivize women in, in the workplace uh, and in entrepreneurship. And so this is just a slide that looks uh, a bit at the reforms that happened over the two-year period that we measured. Uh, and we actually update this data set every two years. So we started in 2008. Uh, this is presenting the data from the, the most recent round of data collection. And we're actually starting a new data collection cycle right now. So as we speak, my team is getting ready to send out uh, thousands of surveys all over the world in multiple languages. Um, and the new data will be, the newest data will be available a year from now because the process takes about a year to send out the, the surveys, code the data, and sort of construct the indicators. Yes? Who are the survey respondents? The survey respondents are lawyers in the country who know sort of the legislative background. So we survey employment lawyers, labor and employment lawyers, family lawyers, and we also, for the, the new indicator on protecting women from violence, we survey uh, sort of NGOs who work on uh, violence against women issues. So all of these are legal indicators and we actually verify or cross-verify all the answers against the law and we link to the law on our website. So for example, if you want to know where a particular restriction comes from, you can go to the website, check the link, and if you can read the language, uh, and we link in various languages, uh, you can see where the restriction is coming from. So what I found actually really nice over this past two year period is while there were 59 legal changes in 44 economies and 48 increased gender parity, there was nothing regressive. So nobody went backwards and that's actually a really, really big step. Um, and so I wanted to talk a little bit about the impact of reforming these laws because oftentimes policymakers will say to us, well, what does it matter? If I do this, you know, what will the effect be beyond sort of general human rights concerns? And so there was an impact evaluation on a reform that happened in Ethiopia. Uh, so Ethiopia reformed its family law in 2000 in a variety of ways, including removing the husband's uh, ability to deny his wife permission to work, requiring the consent of both spouses to administer marital property, and uh, equalizing in a very uh, sort of in a variety of ways the family code. And the reform was carried out in three of Ethiopia's nine regions initially. It's now throughout the country. Uh, but they staggered it, which actually made it a nice uh, experiment for an impact evaluation. And what they found was where the reform occurred, there was a significant shift in women's economic activities, including increases in women's participation in work outside the home, full-time work, and higher skilled work. I'm kind of surprised about that because I think Ethiopia has one of the highest rates of uh, familial abuse of women in the world. So, uh, I mean, it's one thing to have, oh, 
Although on the books or whatever, it's another thing to have it actually implementable at the level of an individual family where the husband would be your wife. Yes, no, I think uh, sort of, and violence against women is a pervasive issue. And part of what we're doing is trying to now look more at how violence against women affects women's voice and agency. But I do think it's, it's a holistic approach. And one thing would be sort of if, you know, a husband has the ability to deny his wife to do certain things outside of the household, that just contributes to the, sort of the lack of voice and agency women have. Uh, so giving them greater legal rights, I think, is, a, is one step forward. It's not the whole continuum. But I think it's not. Sorry. I'm just, I'm, unfortunately, I'm from Ethiopia. But uh, <laughs> could you explain more about this? Because I'm very concerned about it. Of course, and if you're interested, I'm happy to also send you the paper. But no, I don't need a paper. Could you just say the basic things? What is the change in this uh, century about the women's uh, rights in Ethiopia? Of course. So in the previous family code, it was actually quite restrictive in terms of what women legally could do. So a, a lot of the restrictions were like the restrictions I was speaking about earlier in terms of the husband being legally able to control uh, sort of transactions. The husband controlled the marital property. He legally controlled the wife's ability to work. And the question was uh, sort of just looking at the law in the books because we don't measure implementation. Um, sort of what the, the effect of reforming just the legal environment would be on women's ability to work and uh, sort of control marital property. Another thing in Ethiopia which they introduced was joint titling. And I think that's really important. So on the property uh, registry, they included two names. Two names on where you register property, where you can conduct transactions, and that actually helped a lot as well, because what happened was, before, whether it was joint property or not, it was it tended to be registered in the husband's name, because there was only one name, and generally, instead of uh, sort of having the wife's name on the property, it would just be the husband's name. Now, where they have two names, the husband and the wife, are joint owners of the property, and that actually gives them greater legal rights to be able to leverage it. And it gives women the greater authority and sort of the greater agency to be able to utilize that property. So I think, sorry, yeah. please go ahead. I'm just wondering uh, if the research is, is it from the first class or the lower class or how is the research or who are the invest I mean who are the researchers who are the responsible for the you know the question and so on and uh, I'm just uh, so suspicious about uh, this kind of uh, still it's a real problem in Ethiopia I mean I'm a researcher and I'm from Harvard University and I've been involved in that thing so many things and uh, it's so it's so hard to no, no, I agree with you. I think it's a, it is a, it's a, it's an issue, and it's a continuum, right? So what they did is change the law, and what we used was the census, the census data from Ethiopia to see sort of the effect before and after. Uh, but the idea is, you know, what is the effect on women's, for example, ownership or registration of property? But uh, in terms of uh, implementation, I think that's a different issue altogether. And I do think also you need to start somewhere. But you're never going to get where you want to go uh, without sort of having a continuum of steps. So as you mentioned, uh, there's <coughs> a lot of domestic violence in Ethiopia. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, there's also many, many other issues with implementation. And I fully agree, there's a whole range and gamut of issues. But I, I do think you need to start somewhere. And, and changing the law 
does help, although it doesn't get you the full way there. I'm sorry to take all this time, but there's few, very few, uh, I'm even from upper class, but uh, even though I'm not, uh, I don't want anybody to praise anyone, but this information comes from the very few, the poor people who control everything. I don't think that this will really help the reality of the middle situation in Ethiopia. Of course. No, no, I agree with you. I think it's important to look at the whole gamut. And the census data is not just from the, the upper class, but I think it's uh, nationally representative. So I think overall, it's not just looking at the, the highest sort of echelon. And I'm from Pakistan. I fully agree with you. You know, there's very, there's differences between sort of income levels and how it can affect uh, sort of women at different incomes. But I think sort of in terms of this impact evaluation, it wasn't just looking at the, the highest echelon. But I'm happy to send you the research and have a, a, a larger discussion offline. Thank you. Uh, so I'll just skip these slides because we discussed earlier in terms of the impetus of reform. But uh, I wanted to talk about two areas that we're working with governments to reform specific legislation based on the data. So this is looking at gender differences affecting women's legal capacity in, in Congo DRC. Uh, I was discussing this a bit earlier, but these are some of the specific restrictions we're working with the government to reform. So for example, the husband is the head of the household, according to Article 444 of the Family Code, the wife is obligated to live with her husband and to follow him wherever he resides. So that's a, a translation of uh, Article 454. Uh, the wife must obtain her husband's permission for all legal acts where she is incurring a personal obligation. So anything sort of that she legally binds herself to, uh, she needs to get her husband's permission. The wife cannot start legal proceedings, buy mortgage or incur obligations without permission from her husband. Uh, and the management of common property and separate property of the spouses is, is assumed to be vested in the husband. And that's from Article uh, 490 of the Family Code. So we're actually working with the government of DRC to reform some of these issues. The objectives of the bank engagement are to educate policymakers on the economic benefits of gender equality, ensure consistency in legal language and close uh, loopholes and highlight best practices. There have been workshops with the National Assembly, senators and civil society, and diagnostics of labor and land laws. Uh, and so they're working on passing sort of these revisions to the family code, and as I understand it actually very recently uh, it went up to the upper house of government. So, yes? Could you talk about some of the economic arguments that you would present in a situation like that? Of course. So basically, we look at male to female labor force participation rates, but we also look at sort of uh, ownership of firms. We look at uh, data sets on financial inclusion, and we sort of associate them. Uh, and we're not assuming causality, but rather associations on sort of legal restrictions on women's ability to work. So we also look at sort of um, regional examples, right? So for example, in uh, DRC, there may be comparisons from countries that have reformed more recently. So Burkina Faso or Benin actually had similar legislation in the past, but they've reformed uh, in the ensuing period. And the question is, what is a culturally appropriate model for that particular country uh, and also what could be the economic benefits of opening up the space. And I think in DRC it was more a question of sort of them understanding where the restrictions came from because there are lots of civil society organizations working on the ground 
work on this, but I think what the bank brings, and actually the IMF is now starting to look more at women's economic participation as well from the macro level. Uh, so it's not that these issues are not known on the ground. They're very much known on the ground. And people sort of who work in civil society, women's lawyers associations, women notaires actually do a lot of work on this in West Africa. But the question is, who do policymakers listen to? You know, uh, when you start talking to them about sort of removing these restrictions, the argument always comes up, this is a cultural uh, sort of issue. This is something that's embedded in our society. But when you can point out, actually, it's not. It was imported uh, and then remained. It's actually not culturally uh, sort of a part of the underlying framework. I think that's also a very powerful argument. And the, the other thing is sort of the question of customary law. So customary law comes up significantly in sub-Saharan Africa, and how do you incorporate that? And oftentimes, when they crystallize some of these provisions, actually customary law can be better for women in some areas. In some areas, it's worse. It really depends. Um, and because it's so specific community to community, it's actually really difficult to measure within the indicator space. I hope this question is appropriate. Uh, what about Sharia, the interaction of customary law, Sharia with? So I think it's a, I mean, it's a perfectly appropriate question. And I think it's a question of what country you're looking at, right? So it's interesting because Muslim majority countries actually have a wide, wide range uh, of legislation, even though a lot of them are based on Islamic law. So GCC countries, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, may have a different legal framework and different personal status codes than countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, Turkey. And it's, it's not a question of saying Islamic law is static for women. It's not. Uh, and it's also not a question of saying sort of customary law is static for women. It's not. But countries may have a different legal, historical, sort of culturally appropriate range of activities for women. And the question is, how do you move forward? How do you start an engagement based on that? So you don't want to come in and say, look, your framework is incorrect. That is clearly not an appropriate approach to take. But then you sort of point out, OK, where is this coming from? And how do you start sort of removing some of the restrictions, but also introducing greater incentives? So is it something that you want to start in the credit reporting system, for example, making sure that women get their credit histories reflected uh, within the credit reporting system? Or do you want to point out sort of you know, where certain things are better? Actually, in Islamic law countries, property rights for women are better than uh, sort of in a lot of civil law countries. You know, it's just a question of looking at the framework and understanding uh, how can it affect women's participation in the economy. And maybe there are certain legal capacity restrictions uh, in some Muslim majority countries that are not there in other Muslim majority countries. Actually, the Turkish government is doing a lot for women's economic participation. They're looking at uh, childcare models. They're looking at labor force participation. They really want to increase women's participation in the economy. So this is uh, reform work that we did in Cote d'Ivoire. So in 2012, the designation of chef de family, the head of household, was uh, abolished. As a result, the tax code, which previously only allowed husbands to take deductions for children, uh, now splits the dependent deduction between spouses. And what ended up happening before was that actually women paid higher taxes on the same amount of income because they couldn't deduct their spouses, they couldn't deduct their children, and now the deduction is split. Uh, previously, also, husbands could object to their wives' employment or get them fired. 
uh, if they felt it was in the interest of the family, and there was a whole court procedure that you had to go through if you disagreed with your husband's designation of your employment. Now each spouse has the right to oppose the other's profession, and it gives women actually greater leverage in household decision-making capacity. Uh, also previously, the husband chose the family domicile, so he decided where the, the family lived and the wife had to agree with them. And now spouses jointly agree on the domicile, and it allows women also greater voice and agency within household decision-making. So that actually um, was very interesting. We're now working on reviewing other legislation, uh, such as commercial, civil, labor, and land codes to harmonize and reform unequal provisions. Yes? Um, Sorry. I'm, I'm wondering, uh, is this, did they stop the polygamy in the Sharia law in many countries? In the so we don't work. We don't work on polygamy, and I think in Sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, no, in, in every country, in Sharia law, I'm talking now about in general. Of course, and actually, uh, so in Islamic law, we don't look at polygamy at all, and you see polygamy uh, sort of in Islamic. More than one woman. Sorry. More than one wife. Uh, no, no, I know. <laughs> I know what polygamy is, uh, and um, sort of we don't look at polygamy, and we don't look at. You see polygamy in sub-Saharan Africa, and you see it uh, in the Middle East and North Africa. One strand would be from African customary law. The other strand would be from uh, Islamic law. But we don't look at polygamy. Uh, we just How do you look at it? We don't look at it. So when we look at the indicators, we have certain assumptions to make sure the data is comparable, because otherwise it becomes very difficult to compare you know, Brazil with Kyrgyzstan, with Egypt, with Pakistan, with the United States. So we have certain assumptions, and when we look at sort of married women versus married men, one of the assumptions is that the marriage is monogamous. So we, we don't look at women. And there was a question in the back. Um, how does the message get to the people? Like you just mm -hmm. mentioned that all these legislative changes, but what is, how does that get down to the individual families, especially those in rural, even more outward rural areas? How do they know things have changed? And I mean, I think. To, how are they going to? Um, how is a difference going to be made in their lives? Like the Supreme Court makes decisions, but most people don't realize how it affects their lives. I think you're absolutely correct. So there's two things. I think there's one thing in terms of collecting the data, disseminating it, publishing it, which the World Bank can do. And in terms of sort of bringing down to the country level the changes, we work uh, where countries make changes. We work a lot with civil society organizations. Uh, so, for example, the FIDA organizations in West Africa, the associations of women lawyers, are doing a lot to disseminate the changes. But that's really sort of country-level work um, that we ourselves are not able to do. Sometimes we work with World Bank country offices to better disseminate the, the changes in the law. But I think the, the exercise of laying a baseline uh, and sort of doing the reform work, is it's not enough. Clearly there needs to be more, and there needs to be more sort of dissemination of the changes and women need to know their legal rights uh, and the reforms that have happened. But it's also really difficult to do on a personal capacity level in 143 countries. So I think we need to sort of do more on that front. So, and actually the last bullet uh, sort of refers to the work that we're doing with civil society organizations, training to judges, notaires, and those tasked with implementing the legislation. 
uh, and working with the, the female notaires and the, the female lawyers association to better disseminate uh, the information. So actually the FIDO organization in Cote d'Ivoire does a lot of effective dissemination. They have uh, sort of buses that go out into the regions, uh, into the rural areas and sort of teach women about their rights. Actually the last time I was there, uh, we had this great conversation with the, the Association of Women Lawyers in, in Abidjan, and they had um, sort of these great little pamphlets and diagnostics and uh, almost a, a diorama walking women through their rights. So explaining to them how they carry out certain processes, what their legal rights are, uh, really simple, simple booklets in local languages where they teach them their rights. But the, the issue is really the capacity of the organizations to be able to do this work on the ground and get it out through the country level in the rural areas. Uh, but I do think civil society organizations do, do excellent work in this regard, uh, and we hope to support them more. So this is the, the website, wbl.worldbank.org. All of the data is available. All of the research that I was talking about is also available publicly on the website. And as I mentioned earlier, all of the, the laws that we cite to, we link to as well. Uh, so they're available. Sometimes the links break, uh, but we try and repair them as, as rapidly as possible. So are there any other questions? I, I wanted to ask about uh, more affirmative action kind of laws. So I was thinking there are some places that have laws that uh, uh, get CEOs or boards of uh, directors to have uh, uh, racially mixed boards, for example. And I don't know if there's any country that does something similar with women, and if there's uh, any, if you have done any research on the impact of that type of uh, So. Um, we haven't done any research on the impact of that. There are other organizations that have done it, and as, as I understand, the results have been somewhat mixed. But there are countries, I think there are about five right now, that have laws that uh, explicitly set out uh, sort of quotas for women on corporate boards. So I think Norway was the first, uh, and they actually, at first it was a, a voluntary quota, and then they really didn't get enough countries that complied, and then they tried to have some sort of enforcement mechanisms in in the law. So if they didn't have, I think it was, I want to say 40% was the quota, and if the companies didn't comply by a certain year, they were threatened with deregistration from the Oslo Stock Exchange. Now they have it, but I think part of the issue, and I believe France is another country, Germany is discussing it, uh, but the part of the issue is when they started having these quotas, there weren't enough women who were trained to be able to sort of carry out the activities on the corporate board. And what Norway did to actually address this is they started having training courses for women to make sure that they could sort of carry out their the duties on the corporate board. And so I think some of the results have been mixed just because the women weren't as prepared initially. Uh, so the research sort of demonstrates it's better to have uh, sort of more, a variety of experience on corporate boards. So men and women, people from various backgrounds because then you bring in other perspectives. But you want to make sure also that they're, they have the appropriate training and ability to carry out their duties on the corporate board. And I actually am a, a proponent of greater diversity, gender and otherwise, on, on cor corporate boards. But I do think you want to make sure people are prepared for that. Also, because it's such a new phenomenon, it's hard to disaggregate having women on the board from having any new entrant and how that um, shakes up that ecosystem. So 
since, you know, longitudinally, it's like a nanosecond, I just think we have to be a little careful about how we think about what we know and what it's telling us. Exactly. And I think uh, countries have a different perspective on things like affirmative action and quotas. I think some countries are much more comfortable with it, and other countries are not. So I think the end result should be greater diversity on boards. How a country goes about achieving that, that sort of depends on the political ecosystem within the country. First of all, great presentation and great work. Um, I'm curious to find out what are the linkages with other major UN enterprises on women issues, like UN Women or Unifem, and if they're actually using this information. In fact, they do. We work with UN Women a lot. So uh, they review our surveys, they provide feedback, and uh, in terms of the new indicator on protecting women from violence, I'll be the first to say we are not experts on violence against women legislation. We worked with UN Women a lot to figure out, you know, what should we be measuring, what the questions should be, who the respondent list is, and they had a lot of expertise. They were very kind to share with us. We also work uh, with different parts of the UN system, and actually, once we started collecting this data, we did it from a specific perspective, but then we started having conversations with different parts of the UN. For example, uh, the High Commissioner on Refugees, and they were really interested in the citizenship data, on the sort of, you know, where, um, sort of how citizenship laws derive and where that goes from there. We also work with the CEDAW Committee. Uh, we've worked with uh, the ILO, various UN organizations. We also work with a lot of civil society organizations. Equality Now has been really, really great in terms of uh, sort of expanding out the, the data set, providing feedback. Uh, so we try and be as collaborative as possible, understanding that our job is really to provide data, to gather this information, but we want researchers, we want activists, we want governments, uh, we want organizations to be able to utilize the data. For, we really sort of, the part of the bank that I sit in looks uh, at data, it builds business environment indicators, and we kind of have a, a motto, which is uh, somewhat simplistic, but I do really do believe in it. What gets measured gets done. And for us, we measure. That's what we do with the data people. Uh, we're not client-facing, so sometimes I'll work on reform projects, for example, in Cote d'Ivoire, but I'm not the person who always goes and talks to governments about the data. I'm the person who collects the data, uh, codes the data, produces the indicators. Uh, and the hope is that it can be sort of better leveraged into World Bank Group projects, into UN projects. It can raise the awareness of policymakers, because like I said, most people just don't know these issues exist. And what's really, really nice is in the past several years, we've seen people start using the data. We've seen people start referring to the data. Uh, we've seen other organizations, countries really take it up and run with it. And for us, I think that's actually really, really heartening to see the IMF talking about it, to see UN women talking about it, to see the CEDAW committee referring to it. I completely understand this is not enough. This is, we definitely need to do more, but I, I see this as a first step. Until you measure something, you really can't know what the baseline is and you can't know what you should be doing. We, and, and definitely we need to increase the measurement agenda. We need to start looking at implementation. We need to start looking at change on the ground. But I think given sort of the, the resources that we have, it's a good first step and hopefully we can continue to build on that. 
So when you go into different countries, how do you remain sensitive to the cultural uh, understandings of gender and, and how women are supposed to work, um, while at the same time there seems to be this, you know, this idea of like economic justice for women across the board. So do you get people on the local level to participate? You talked about the civil organization. So how do you form that coalition and how do you make sure it's culturally appropriate? And uh, so there's two different things, right? So one would be the measurement agenda. Right, uh, and I think with indicators, you need to make sure that the indicators and the data is comparable across countries. So you look at the same thing in the same way, regardless of what the cultural background is. So we'll measure the law in Pakistan the same way we measure the law in Ethiopia, the same way we measure the law in Kyrgyzstan. You know, that's sort of the the idea behind an indicator. But I would caution you: indicators are a mile wide and an inch deep. Right, so you cannot drill down specifically at a country level in producing indicators. That's just not the way the system works. But when you start reform, and then we really work with uh, sort of World Bank teams who are client-facing, who work at the country level, and they're the ones who go into the country, they talk to the policymakers, they talk to the civil society organizations, and they decide, okay, what is the government ready for? What do the civil society organizations want? You know, what is the additional value added from the World Bank working in this space? Because as I said before, these are issues that civil society organizations on the ground know much better. They're certainly going to know it much better than me. They're going to know it much better than my colleagues uh, who work in Washington, and much better than my colleagues also who work you know, in country offices on the ground, because this is their bread and butter. And we kind of work with them to see you know, where should the push start. You know, where do you begin that conversation? Because I don't really see it as going in, changing one thing, and pulling out. No, it's a much larger sustained engagement that takes a number of years. And you don't start with the hardest thing. You should start with the easiest thing and sort of work from there and build a coalition. Or even better, join the coalition that already exists. Because this is a very sort of sensitive, these are sensitive issues, and there's country level engagement on the ground. And you're not gonna go in and change a system. You're going to work within the system to sort of move it along in a direction that it was already going. Yes, um, regarding indicators, one of the things that strikes me about your presentation is the total absence of childcare in, in these things. You know, yes. Talk about uh, maternity leave, paternity leave, but kind of going towards that more incentive. So direction into the public policy, why not? And so that was actually my lapse. So we do look at childcare, uh, and I just neglected to mention it. And actually, one of the things that we're doing in this round of survey data collection was we're actually expanding out quite a bit on childcare. And the impetus for that was actually a colleague of mine was working in Turkey, uh, and the Turkish government was interested in, in looking more at childcare around the world. And so we did some work in legislation on childcare, and we thought, oh, this is actually a really interesting area. We have a few indicators on that. You know, where is there public provision of childcare, uh, and sort of is it means tested, is it not? But now we're actually expanding that out quite a bit. Other other areas that we're expanding out are part-time work and uh, domestic work. So looking at the the labor law regime for domestic workers. Uh, and sort of protections around that. But I completely agree with you. And I think in particular for high-income OECD economies, there's the whole reconciliation debate, the issue around childcare, and how do you balance uh, sort of employment and home responsibilities. You know, I think that's a very, very big issue. So 
Well, my question was very simple, but I'll just, I don't want to take too long to respond. But first of all, is the U.S. in your database? Yes. And uh, I just wondered how we, how we rate, because we have, uh, you know, a considerable legal personhood. And, uh, you know, I think we are very unfettered in that respect. But when it comes to, it's very similar to your question, child care, but there's also maternal leave, protection of maternity, parental leave, that sort of thing, where obviously the Northern European countries are very, very high loss. So I just wondered how we, how we look globally, so to speak. <laughs> so we don't actually, um, we present the data, and we do sort of yes or no <laughs> answers or numerical answers to questions, uh, which can easily be sort of translated to zero ones for economic research. But we don't sort of have a ranking. We don't say, okay, X country is better than Y country. Right. Uh, but uh, rather we lay a baseline of what things look like for particular countries. But I agree with you. In the U.S., for example, maternity leave is an issue. You know, there's no, yeah, it's a huge issue. Uh, and I think actually the U.S. is one of three countries that we measure, if I'm not mistaken, that doesn't have some form of paid maternity leave. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Could you just following along these lines? I think you said you were going to share your 14 incentives. I guess, of course, and do you want to... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Could you actually yeah, tell us what course. they are? Yeah, Precisely. that would be great. Because um, th th this would be, childcare would be in the 14, right? Sorry, I wrote this like a year ago. No, no, that's all right. That's all right. That's right. <laughs> I should know this. We're very sympathetic. So there's yeah. a... Yeah. There's a box in the report, and I'm happy to leave the report with you, that's looking at sort of the restrictions that we're measuring. Uh, and the incentives. So the length of paid maternity leave, the length of paid paternity leave, the ratio of the length of paid paternity to maternity leave, uh, sort of laws preventing or penalizing employers from firing pregnant women, uh, laws requiring employers to give the same or an equivalent position back to a woman once she returns from maternity leave, tax deductions applicable to women, quotas for women on corporate boards, quotas for women in parliaments, quotas for women in local governments, laws mandating equal remuneration for women and men for work of equal value, so the ILO standard for equal work, uh, and laws mandating non-discrimination in hiring practices, and laws requiring uh, employers to provide break times for nursing mothers. So I apologize, there's 12. There's a list of 12 that we have. Oh, actually, we I counted 14 back. with your... <laughs> Sorry. No, no, no. Uh, but I'm happy to, to leave the report with... Yeah, yeah, we would you. love that, actually, as a resource. That would be fabulous. So you're finding that those were negatively correlated with your with your findings on, on labor protection. So basically, what we found is, in general, countries that have more of those 12 incentives uh, sort of have fewer restrictions, and vice versa. So countries that had the maximum number of restrictions that we measured also tended to have the fewest incentives. So it wasn't labor protections per right, se, but right. labor plus other things. So how do you interpret that? Just more. I, I'm trying to understand. I think more what was interesting is we found where countries had more restrictions, they were also less interested in providing incentives for women to work. So it's doubly bad, right? So they have more restrictions and they're not encouraging women. So it's, it's fairly simple, but it actually presents a very stark picture. It is available, the full thing online, uh, and you can download it. That is the link, yes. And in terms of incentives, um, I remember a friend of mine from Chile, and she just mentioned that they expanded the time, and they were very concerned that what was that that the impact of that was going to be employers won't want to uh, hire women because they're worried that they're going to leave and they're going to leave for six months. 
and they can't afford to lose uh, like someone for six months. So do you have anything on what's the impact or what happens when you have a longer uh, maternity leave uh, in countries where there's no paternity leave that I think there I are think a lot. Right? Chile may have introduced something recently, if I'm not mistaken. And we actually have a case study specifically on Chile, if you're Chilean mm -hmm. and you're interested. Uh, Chile is a actually very interesting example. It's the one country in Latin America that has uh, sort of restrictions on married women's property rights. So I mentioned earlier, throughout Latin America, they reformed uh, after the Spanish reform. Chile actually, uh, sort of, if you're married in Chile under the default marital property regime, your property is administered by your husband. And that includes any property that you bring uh, into the marriage. So say I'm single, I own an apartment, and I get married under the default marital property regime, uh, then my husband would administer that property. But the Chilean government, and, and Michelle Bachelet, I think is very big on her agenda to have better sort of legal rights for women. And they're actually sort of debating this, this area, I think, as, as we speak. So they have introduced a lot of reforms for women. In terms of the incentive, disincentive question that you're asking, I think you have to be careful about the length of maternity leave. So it's not that longer maternity leaves are better, but what's more appropriate. And we've done some research, and I've some, seen some research from other places as well, in terms of the length of maternity leaves and women's uh, sort of you know, going back into the labor force. And there is, I think, uh, a relationship between that. If you start seeing too long maternity leaves, and I don't think that's the case in Chile, but you actually see really, really, really long ones in uh, Eastern Europe and Central Asia, two years, three years, I've seen four years. That actually has a disincentive. But in terms of the Chilean one, I don't think the length would be that uh, sort of that much of a disincentive. Another thing which is interesting is you see some laws mandating employers who hire you know, 50 women, 100 women to have some kind of childcare on premises, and then you start seeing these companies have 49 women or 99 women. But they'll never sort of have the number of women um, that mandates sort of the triggering of the law. So the question is, how helpful is that? Uh, and you know, what does that do for women's employment? And I'll just note, because it might be helpful while you're talking with countries about ways of managing it. Uh, again, not dissimilar from the other example that I shared where you try to get away from it being gendered. What we're working on right now uh, with the city of Boston is if the building's above a certain square footage, it has to have childcare. That in essence... That actually is really interesting. One thing I was talking to a colleague about, because we were discussing this precise question, and the issue was, should it be number of employees? Right. right. Well, yeah, it's exactly. Women. Exactly. I mean, precisely. And so that's if we actually want to increase labor participation rates. We need additional people caring for children. Precisely, and right. you need a, a better sort of division of responsibility within the family. So that's. Uh, I think there are certain countries who have that, and I do think that's actually better. Better for families, right? Certain number of employees versus you know female employees. Finland and. Finland is part of the data set, yeah. but nothing sort of beyond the basic data collection. Do you have a particular interest in Finland? Yeah. Um, in terms of education, Finland becomes the first, uh, the first uh, okay. student uh, this year or last year. So I'm so curious about it and how is the family and the women's life and so on. I can't really speak to Finland per se. It's not one of the countries that I've concentrated on. But I imagine the legislation is is quite equal in Finland. The Nordic countries tend to, to have the most equal legislation. 
So it's very difficult to capture customary law. What we do capture is the, the role of customary law in the system. So for example, we look at whether customary law is codified. Right? So there's a few countries in Sub-Saharan Africa where it is codified. Uh, we also look at whether there's a non-discrimination clause in the Constitution and if customary law is subject to constitutional non-discrimination or equality. But if you ask me what is customary law, say, in Central African Republic, I wouldn't know. And it would vary from village to village, from locality to locality. It's almost impossible to measure, certainly on a cross-country basis. I mean, if you were going to measure it, I would say pick a country, pick a region, pick some villages in that region. Because otherwise you'll never, you'll never be able to, to tell what it is. That's kind of the... So you really, in a sense, you can only deal with formal? We can only deal with formal, or we can, we can deal with written legislation, uh, and we can look at what the role of customary law is within the constitutional framework. So there are certain countries that recently reformed to allow customary law to fall within the rubric of constitutional non-discrimination. So under customary law, if my rights are not being sort of lived up to what they should be, can I take that to court? Can I exercise my rights? And in some countries, customary law actually falls out of constitutional non-discrimination. And that means then, what is your recourse? So, but I do think it's important to look at customary law, but you have to do it at the country level. You really can't do it on a regional basis. And if you did, it would take a lot of people, lots and lots of resources, uh, and you know, it would be a, a huge, a huge exercise. Great. Can, can I just, uh, just take advantage of our last two minutes and go back to this economic argument? So when I asked earlier about the economic argument, I, I what I heard, maybe incorrectly, but was you mm -hmm. highlighting kind of economic benefits for women of doing this? But I wonder whether you all also um, bring out uh, arguments for, you know, social welfare indicators or for the economy more broadly. So I mean, there's, there's, obviously it's going to help women, right? But it, it, but but the people that are deciding are typically not the women who you're going to help. It's people who would maybe want to understand why is this good for me or my constituents or something like that. And so, so I was wondering. We don't look at social welfare, but we uh -huh. do look at other research, for example, that looks at uh, economic growth for the economy more broadly. Uh -huh. So there's a couple of really interesting papers looking at uh, sort of what growth rates would be if uh, sort of labor force participation rates of women versus men were equal. Uh, so we, we highlight that uh, and in terms of what overall growth and uh, sort of labor force participation rates would be. But in terms of the research we do ourselves, we don't. And does that generally support like an expanding pie argument rather than a substitution? Exactly, okay. because right. that's the that's the issue, right? The question is, okay, if I do this, will women take the jobs that men should have? Yeah. Right, and that's the the counter argument. But actually, you just grow the whole pie, right? So there are more jobs for everyone, uh, and that I think is the best argument, and I think it's the most accurate argument. But I'm not an economist, so I'm really not the one who makes those arguments. I use the, the arguments from the economists. And actually, we're, so at the bank, there are not that many lawyers. Uh, there are not that many lawyers who do this type of research. But I sit in a department surrounded by PhD economists. Oh, well, that's yeah. maybe not yeah, surprising. That's probably yeah, 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 but that's good. That's good. We need complementarity. We need diversity, OK? <laughs> in professional background as well as other. That's terrific. Thank you so much. What a, what a great
informative piece of work. It's such great stuff you guys are doing. So important. Thank, uh, you, thank so you for sharing it. Uh, next week, I hope you all will join us. Though Marks, who's a WAP fellow, is going to talk about rebel queens and black diamonds, gender politics in armed groups. So please join us for that. Yeah, it's a great title. Yeah, it's a great title.